morning. My name is Donovan. Is this thing on? Yep. All right. Good. Um, hmm, I feel a little out of sorts. Let me pray. Uh, God, help me, help us to see you, to worship you, and uh, to delight in that. So send your spirit. These things that we read about and cling to are unbelievable. Like literally, we won't believe them uh, without your help. So work in our hearts and our minds and break down barriers of confusion and resistance and pain and history and our own narratives that we build and help us to walk in the truth. So be with us. Help us. Amen. All right, so we're continuing in the book of Hebrews, which has been great. Only a couple, not even two chapters through, and uh, I've had a great time. So hopefully you have enjoyed as well. We'll continue here in Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. And yeah, let's see what God has for us here. So let's just go right there. Verse 10. So Hebrews 2, verse 10. The very first thing that comes out of here is it says this. It was fitting that Jesus should suffer, right? That's the summary of that verse. I'm going to go back here and I'm going to break it down a little bit, but it's basically saying it was fitting. So we preach Christ crucified, right? God came incarnate in the flesh and died. And the writer of Hebrews says that's a fitting thing that God should die. It makes sense. It's fitting. It's how it should be. Now, the question I have is, he says that's fitting, but the world doesn't think that. Right? 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the word of the cross, in other words, this message that God came and died and suffered, is folly. So we preach Christ crucified. The world hears that and says that's folly. But the writer of Hebrews says that's fitting. It's actually fitting. It makes perfect sense that he who would save us should suffer and die. Now let's think about why the world, and by that I mean anyone who is not in Christ who hasn't believed, Right? So any of us, before we came to Christ, this was folly, not fitting. Because we picture God coming differently. Right? So picture uh, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, right? the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? and it's down to the last few men. Right? Like, women and children are hidden in the caves, almost everyone's died, they're facing 10,000 orcs, right? and you've got like six guys left on horses. It's like, let's ride out! You know, for glory, and we'll make a stand of this, right? And at the very last moment, if you've seen the movie, you know, oh, the last moment of hope there up on the hill is Gandalf, right? With the Rohirrim, 10,000 horses, and they come and win the victory. That's how we picture victory. But picture someone comes and says everyone's in the caves, and they're, they're hiding out, and they're afraid, and all hope is lost. And someone says, I've got good news. Gandalf has come. Oh, where is he? Out there, nailed to a tree. But it's folly. That's not help. How's that help? But the writer of Hebrews says this is fitting, actually. How is it fitting? It's not obvious to us. There's a man named Gianni Versace who was a fashion designer. He was murdered. Before his death, he was asked about his religious opinions, and he said this, I believe in God, but I'm not the kind of religious person who goes to church. 
who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus born in the stable with the donkey. I'm not stupid, he says. I'm wise. See, the world seeks wisdom, and the cross is folly. He says, that's stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power he has, had to have himself born in a stable. It wouldn't have been comfortable. You don't choose discomfort. You buy the best bed. Right? Some of you, the wise among you, have a a little cradle that you cram yourself into and identify with Christ. You are wise. Most of us are fools. But you get that idea. What, why would the God of the universe come in that form? In a stable, right? To come and take on flesh, and not just that, but then to suffer. That seems like folly. And the writer to the Hebrews says it's fitting. It makes absolutely perfect sense. Now, he gives three reasons why, and two of them will be in next week's sermon. All right? Well, actually, because it's next week's text. So he, he goes through... 14 through 17 give a reason. Verse 18 gives a reason. But today, verses 10 through 13. And the answer is this. Why would it be fitting for God to come in the form of Christ as the founder and finisher of our faith and to suffer? To be made perfect through suffering. Why is that fitting? The answer here that is given is family unity. All right? So let's go. Verse 10. It was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist. So that's the he. It's God the Father. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. So that's what he's doing. Right? Jesus has come. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to take on our sin. He's going to burst forth from the grave, defeat, sin, Satan, and death, and then bring us along with him. He's bringing us to glory. So you've got Jesus the Son and us the sons and daughters. Right? So here's the family. So God is bringing this family along. And so it is fitting that because he's bringing us along, he should suffer and die. He's the founder and finisher of our faith, right? It was fitting that in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So if he's going to be the founder of this movement, he should be united to them and in like form. We should not be different. We should be similar. There should be a family resemblance. Now, quick note on this idea of him being made perfect. Jesus is sinless, and the writer to the Hebrews knows this. In verse chapter 7, he says this. Again, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So he's, he's sinless, but what does it mean for him to be made perfect? Hebrews 5 gives us an answer. Although he was a son... Already, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, there's that same language. What does that mean? It means to learn obedience. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here's here's the idea. Jesus has always been sinless. When he came as a man, it was at one point untested and hidden. And then through his process of suffering and trial and crucifixion and resurrection, his Glory went from being untested and hidden to tested and proven, revealed. The hidden glory that's there behind that mask was revealed at the cross, okay? So it was fitting 
Why? Verse 11. For he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, all have one source, the Father. We're in the same family. There's got to be a family resemblance here, right? So what we're going to see here is that we talk a lot about being conformed to the image of Christ. Today I'm going to talk about Jesus being conformed to our image, which might sound, sounds a little heretical. That's what the incarnation is. I'm going to bring these sons to glory. We're going to be united. We're going to be unified. Okay, will we be unified? Will you know us? Will you walk among us? Are we actually in the same family? Are you some kind of spoiled right, brother who doesn't taste what we taste and see what we see? No, we are in the same family, same father, brothers, and therefore there must be family unity. So what we see is that Christ is going to come and meet us where we are, so he can take us where he is. He's conformed to our image so we can be conformed to his. The rest of this passage is Old Testament prophecies of Jesus having a family. That is not going to be an only child forever. Particularly, verse 12, right, says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So this is quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the murder and resurrection of Jesus. Here's a portion of it. On the cross, he's crying out, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. It's his prayer to the Father. And then it transitions to victory. Oh, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Therefore, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This verse just struck me last night. It says this. This is the end of verse 11, right? So, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Maybe you are ashamed of yourself. Maybe you're ashamed of this church. I had someone tell me one time they basically wouldn't invite anyone to our church, and the basic reason was they were ashamed of it. And I'm like, all right, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not ashamed of our church. Jesus is not ashamed of you. You get that guy in your family that everyone's like, oh, I hope he doesn't show up at the family. You're ashamed of him. It's like, Jesus isn't, assuming he's in Christ. I don't know. I was just struck by that. Like, I don't know to what extent I carry shame. I think we really don't know. It's hard to know. It's hard to put our, our finger on it. But I know it's there. It's, I haven't been liberated yet. It's, a, it's part of my identity, right? Like, part of how I operate. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. No matter, I mean, just think of yesterday or even maybe this morning and your, your failings, Right? Jesus knows that, and he's not ashamed of you. He's proud of his family. Right? You, when, you have a, when your kids get older, you start to be ashamed of them. You know what I mean? But think about when they're young. You know, you have little babies, and you just can't wait to show them. Look at this. Right? That's how Jesus views all of us. Like, literally, he wants to show you off. I'm going down that man-centered preaching again, right? But isn't that, remember, that's the purpose of the creation. Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Oh, wait, this is the wrong verse. Um, I mean, that's true too, but the earth groans, right? It's, it's wanting something. It's longing for something. It's leaning into the future for what? The revealing of the glory of you, the sons of God. It's Jesus bursting his family forth. I'm not ashamed of you. I delight in you. Meditate on that. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. Like, he's, think about that. He's, this, he's the eternal. Holy, innocent, unstained, exalted above the heavens. And then he incarnates among us, and he's not ashamed of us. I had a, I guess a glimpse, and we call it, probably too short to call it a vision. But I usually picture the incarnation and Jesus, like the disciples beholding him, and like Jesus is standing over there, and they're looking at him and adoring him, and I think that's certainly true, but then I had this glimpse of him standing beside us shoulder to shoulder. That's the incarnation. Because he's with us. He's for us. He's not ashamed of us. We're his family. So let's talk about him being conformed to our image and the incarnation. I preach a lot about the deity of Christ. He's God. And I, that's true. And we need to know that, and I'll keep preaching on it. A couple weeks ago, we had Britta, one of our servant leaders and members in Cedar Falls. She came down here to the Cedar Rapids campus and was talking about the women's advance. And Glenn asked her, I don't remember exactly the question, but something to the extent of, what's your favorite thing about Jesus? And she said, his humanity. I had never thought of that. I mean, I've thought of his humanity, but that's not what I would have said. I would have been like, oh, his confounding nature, right? That when you try to trap him, it's your trap. Like, just his godness, right? his bigness. And she said, his humanity. And I think we, we do brush that off. I do. So I texted her and I said, Why? Why did you say that? What's wrong with you? No. See, here's, here's what she said. I think I typically see my humanity and humanity in general as the problem. The fact that Jesus is human would indicate his pleasure in and celebration of humanity. I'm human, and it's okay. It's actually something I have in common with God. Family resemblance. And as a believer, I am then truly free to be free of sin because human does not equal sin. The more I'm willing to approach Him in His humanity the more possible it is for me to relate to him and allow his presence to be with me in what feels like very human trials or daily living. And this will be a theme that will come up in Hebrews again and again. He had trivial things in his life, mundane, laughter, sadness, slivers, stubbed toes, celebration, naps. I don't have to ascend above my humanity for it to be meaningful. Wow. He... There is a dignity in this. 
right? So, yes, there is sin, and that part of our nature, our old man that needs to be crushed and, and will be completely transformed and glorified. But when we go in, to heaven and are glorified, what, we, what will we be? Glorified humans. It's not a shame to call us brothers. That line in that Christmas hymn, um, that says, long lay the world in sin and error pining, right? Till he arrived and the soul felt its worth. And I thought, you know, never know what the author intends there. I've always pictured it as like, oh, he came to rescue us. Man, I guess that makes me feel worth. And that's true. But I guess this is making me see it as just the very incarnation. You, you came as one of us? You are glorious beings. You're marred by sin, but you are glorious beings. You bear the mark of the image of God. There is nothing else like you on the planet. It's stunning. And Jesus came and embodied that. So one, he's conformed to our image in the incarnation, but also in our suffering. Human history is suffering. We just suffer. Pain, illness, and disability, and hunger, and poverty, and death, and grief, and hatred, and frustration, and heartbreak, and guilt, and humiliation, and anxiety, and loneliness, and self-pity. I was literally thinking of, our modern times has relieved this a bit. A lot of that stuff we still deal with, but we, we die less frequently, Right? health. We have a lot of solutions for health. In many parts of the West, there's not a lot as much war anymore, right? But this has been an interruption. Think of human history. The phrase to me came to me, it's, it's a trail of tears. Now, that's an actual historical event where uh, many Cherokee Native Americans were rounded up and marched for miles, and 4,000 of them died, and they called that the trail of tears, and I can understand why, and I just want to globalize that and say that's human history. So son of God, he's going to come, he's going to incarnate. He says, I'm going to be the founder of their faith. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to know them. We're going to have a family resemblance. Then it is fitting that he should suffer. So I was doing some research on suffering. In the United States today, about 15 women die in pregnancy or childbirth per 100,000 live births. 15 per 100,000. That's too many, but a century ago, it was more than 600 women. So think of the, when Jesus came, right? I know there's a lot of suffering. I am making the argument that modernity has kind of hidden some of that. So I want us to take a little peek into the time of Christ. When rather than 15 in 100,000 women dying in childbirth, it was 600. In the 16 and 1700s, the death rate was twice that. By some estimates, between 1 and 1.5% 1 of women giving birth died. That means... I've never met anyone that died in childbirth. I don't know one. He's saying one out of every hundred. Just death in general. The average studies suggest that in the past, around one quarter of infants died in their first year of life, and around half of all children died before they reached the end of puberty. 
So that's a tragedy. We know people who have lost children. That's a tragedy. And they go and go to help and support groups with other people that have experienced the same thing. What I'm saying is if you rewind a couple hundred years, that support group was called the planet. Nobody was free of that. Everybody lost children. It is fitting that he should suffer. That we could be in the family. The Black Plague, the true and better pandemic. 25 to 50 million people died. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Estimates of the total number killed in wars throughout all history range from 150 million to a billion. That's a, that's a guesstimate. But it's a lot. Just read the Bible. Go back and read Isaiah again. Oh, the horrors. War. And it wasn't like modern war. You're talking being clubbed to death, speared, dismembered, and left in the grass. Oh, it is fitting that he should suffer. This, these are your brothers and sisters. Look at them, marred and broken and dying and sinning and crying and lonely. You're going to go be with them? Yeah, then it is fitting that you should suffer. It is so fitting. You start to see it is folly that he should not. That's folly. That's why to us, to the called who now see, it is the wisdom and power of God. It is fitting that he should suffer. Don't preach to me about a God that doesn't die. I can't believe that. I could go on. I think we get it. One writer says this, No words can express how much the world owes to sorrow. Most of the Psalms were born in the wilderness. Most of the epistles were written in a prison. The greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers have all passed through fire. The greatest poets have learned in suffering what they taught in song. And that's Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I've never been in the military. No thanks. Um, but I always wonder, like, if you're an enlisted man who comes, up, comes in and goes up through the ranks, how you feel about these people that come in through ROTC in college and now have authority? I don't know. I'm sure it varies. But what we're seeing about Jesus is he didn't do that. He came in through the ranks. It's made perfect, learned obedience through suffering. It is fitting. This is St. Augustine. The word of the Father, the word, the Logos, the Son, the word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and born in time for us. He without whose divine permission no day completes its course, wished to have one of those days for his human birth. In the bosom of the Father, he existed before all the cycles of the ages. He was born of an earthly mother. He entered on the course of the years on that very day. The maker of man became man. That he, ruler of stars, might be nourished at the breast. That he, the bread, might be hungry. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied in the journey. 
that he, the truth, may be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline personified, might be scourged with a whip, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, courage incarnate, might be weak, and he, security itself, might be wounded, and he, life itself, might die. Oh, it's fitting. This is fitting. So he came and was conformed to our image and the flesh and the suffering, but that's not the end. He came that he may bring many sons to glory, to be conformed to his image, right? Number one, transforming suffering into not just a random suffering, right? Atheism, secularism has no answer for suffering. Suffering For your pain, it's just, it just is. What is the meaning of this? What is the purpose of this? The answer is nothing. It's not even an answer. It's silence. As you cry and weep and loss and your bereavement, the universe is silent. But the cross and Christ gives us all meaning. And there's a lot that can be said, but at the end of the day, here's the bottom of it, is that it is fruitful suffering. It is not fruitless. It is not without purpose. God's hand is in it. Christ's suffering didn't lead to nothing, right? It led to bringing many sons to glory. It led to the birth of the church. You look at it and you're like, what can there be here? What good can come of this? And as we've said before, the greatest things in all of reality came from the most terrible moment. The cross was simultaneously the most horrific and terrific thing. Now, we look at our lives, and in the moment, we don't know exactly, right? How is my suffering bearing fruit? I don't always know how, but I know that it is. For the Christian, all suffering is for good. It's for the development of your character. It's for the expansion of the kingdom. It is for the glory of God. It is not without purpose. It is transformed. The sufferings of, the, of Christ are the birth pangs of the church, and the sufferings of the church are the birth pangs of many glories. A verse that has been haunting me for years is uh, it's in Ecclesiastes 7, I think it's verse 10. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And I have, I am faced with opportunities over and over again to try to learn what that means. Because what do you want? He said, you have two options for tonight. We have a party. Aubrey's cooking. Let's go. Or you come with me to the house of mourning with families that are torn apart for different reasons. We're going to go sit with them. Which do you prefer? Our flesh wants to go to the feast. And the scripture tells us that the house of mourning is better. 
Because God is doing something there. He's doing something everywhere, but there's a particular, God said it. It's better to go there. So yeah, feast when you can, and it's great, and yeah, oh, but the house of mourning. And Ecclesiastes gives you a bit of a reason that says this, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Oh, you know what that means? It means take it seriously. It means be aware of life and its value and how wispy it is and what really matters. Because we forget that in the frivolity. But those moments of mourning are awakening. They're like smelling salts. I've told this story before, but years ago, there was a woman at our church who was dying of cancer, and I saw her probably a few days before she died, and she looked like death. And I'm a young pastor, and our church hasn't seen a lot of death. And I'm going into this house like... <laughs> That's what I signed up for. I signed up to preach. and sign up for this. That's a confession, but talk to any young preacher. Oh, young aspiring pastor. I want to preach. I want to make disciples. I want to plant churches. You want to go into the house of mourning? And I remember sitting and talking with her, and she just talked for eight minutes or something like that. And just... <laughs> I don't remember everything she said. It's not the point, but I smelled something. You know what I mean? Like, I sensed something. She was close. She was close. And then she says to me after sharing, do you have anything to say, pastor? And I imagine, like, air quotes around the pastor, right? Like, do you have anything to say, pastor? She didn't mean it like that. That's how I felt. And I think it was appropriate. It's like, in these moments, we often feel like, well, I don't know what to say. Just listen. They're the ones that are close. So you don't have to fix or say anything. Shut up. That's, what's the point of all that? That these sufferings are not without purpose and meaning. God is at work in these moments doing things. So we're being conformed to his image because Christ's suffering is fruitful. Apart from him, right, it's death, destruction, but in him. So I'm not saying all suffering will bear good fruit for every individual. In Christ, you must be one of the brothers. You must cling to him. You must believe in him. And when you are united to him, we share that family resemblance. And part of those, one of those traits is fruitful suffering. The other way we're being among many of the ways that we are being transformed to His image is that we are trusting God. We are learning to trust Him in this, in this suffering. Verse 13, again, I will put my trust in Him. That's Christ. See, yeah, human, we suffer, but we don't suffer like Christ. We whine and whimper and complain. And I'm not saying we can't moan and groan because suffering there's an appropriateness to that, to mourn. That's another thing I've learned over the years is when someone is mourning and you think, I want to make it better, like, it's not supposed to be better. They just lost someone they love. It's supposed to be a pain. We're supposed to cry. You don't, you're not there to take that away. 
So there's an appropriate way to moan and I mean to suffer mourn. But then in our sin, there's this other stuff we bring into it that's not appropriate. Because we're sinful. But Christ didn't do that. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do instead? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's the, that's the battle. It's, it's right to suffer. And when we suffer, to feel pain and agony and all levels of even degrees of despair because that's what it is. It's a fight. But the fight is to learn, as Christ did, to continue entrusting ourselves to God in that. And that's where Christ is taking us, right? From trustless suffering to trusting suffering. To lean into Him. So this is a bit heavy today, but that's, that's what we're talking about. The suffering of humanity, the suffering of God. It's to be an encouragement to us, right, that he came. And this again, this will come up again and again in the book of Hebrews. That his suffering is a solace to us. We sing that. The solace in your suffering is my strength. We sing that in a song. I don't remember the song, but you think about that verse. Just sing it. What is that? The solace in your suffering is our strength. What does solace mean? I don't know. This just came to me. I have a sense, but I'm going to look it up. I don't want to misspeak. We sing these things. What are we saying? My internet's down. Someone look it up for me. I have a sense that it means like, Empathy, comfort, consolation, consolation, yes. So the solace in your suffering is my strength. So there it is. I had a sense of it. So here we are in this trail of tears, and I need strength. Where am I going to get it? Where am I going to get this strength, this consolation, this solace? It's in the suffering of Christ. We are not alone. We are like our brother, and he is not ashamed. Even in that, when we are broken and down and disheveled and crying and can't speak, he's not ashamed of us. Because he came, and he knows, and he bleeds with us. Lives. I have some other stuff in here, but not today. So, let me invite the response team up. And uh, communion, musicians. And we're going to go to Jesus and pray for a miracle. What is that miracle? That there would actually be solace. You know, do we all oh, the solace in your suffering is my strength? Is it? Because <laughs> here's the deal: some of you are either there, the things I'm describing, you're there. Some of you've been there, coming out of it. Some of you're heading toward it. There's no escape. That is the family resemblance. It's coming in some form or fashion, right? 
So we need to soak in this, right? Whether it's before, during, or after, this is it. And ask God for that true solace, right? That this would move from philosophy to existence, right? That's why we gather. So we're going to sing to Him and pray that the words we sing are born of faith and of the Spirit and are being pressed into who we are and that we're not just be fleeting words. If you believe that God has revealed something to you for the church, a word to build up, a prophecy, we would love to hear that. We ask that you would share that with Glenn here in Cedar Rapids or the MC in Cedar Falls and we'll help discern that together. And we're going to take communion. So again, I feel like this is a little dark today, but that's the passage. And also remember this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And what did he pick? A symbol of death. So he kind of left it on a sad note. What's up with that? Well, because he knows this is life. And there's going to be trials and tribulations and temptations. He says, I need you to remember something. Every time you gather and consider who I am, remember the family resemblance that I too took on flesh, right? The bread and the cup are his body and his blood. It's a reminder of the incarnation, but also of the crucifixion. That that body didn't just come, but was broken for you, poured out for you. He did the fitting thing, and he wants us to remember that. So sitting with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said to them, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So God, come, minister to us, and uh, fill in the gaps in our unbelief, in our doubts, fears, and build us up by your Spirit. Amen.